Welcome to Sharp Waves, a podcast from the International League Against Epilepsy. Our episodes cover epilepsy research, clinical care, career development, and issues in diagnosis and treatment from around the globe. Hello, everyone. This is Alina from Yes, ILE, bringing you another episode of the Sharp Waves podcast. The matter of today's discussion has gained attention only recently. Association between cerebral amyloid angiopathy and seizures in epilepsy. There is not much data on it, but we are gradually getting more and more insight on this topic. We'll frame today's talk around a paper recently published in the European Journal of Neurology titled The Incidence and Risk Factors Associated with Seizures in Cerebral Amyloid Angiopathy. With me today is the first author of the article, Dr. Brinsfein. Dr. Freund, welcome. We are very excited to have you with us today. Could you please briefly introduce yourself to uh, our listeners? Thanks so much, Dr. Ivanyuk. I appreciate the uh, invitation. I'm currently about to start my my job here in in Jacksonville, Florida with Mayo Clinic as an epileptologist and assistant professor in the Department of, of Neurology. But in in terms of my background, I completed my residency at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and then subsequently served in active duty as a neurologist for four years uh, in the U.S. Navy, followed by a, a fellowship in clinical neurophysiology with a focus in EEG here in Jacksonville at Mayo Clinic, and then subsequently just completed my epilepsy fellowship in Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. My research interests and interests clinically relate to EEG and epilepsy, and particularly looking at patients with acute symptomatic seizures, as well as understanding better ICU EEG patterns. Uh, and their meaning in, in prognosis and diagnosis of patients who are critically ill. I'm also quite interested in patients with dementing processes and the use of EEG, as well as the importance of seizures in this population. Amazing. It seems that you're just the right person to talk to about this topic. So why don't we start? And my first question is, overall, why is it important? Yes, DAA is the vascular problem for vessel disease, seizures are the problem of cortical excitability, where those two come together, and how can CAA predispose people to having seizures? So I think the importance uh, lies in the recent uh, studies and recent focus on epilepsy in dementing processes and in neurodegenerative diseases, uh, of which obviously CAA is a subtype of that. A good example would be in the ERIC study, where they looked at patients who had a threefold increase in risk for dementia who were newly diagnosed with epilepsy, and also looking at patients who were newly diagnosed with epilepsy had a threefold increase, increased risk of dementia. So there's clearly a link, and other studies are pointing to a link between seizures and, and deterioration of the neurodegenerative process as well. Specifically regarding CAA and seizures, firstly, CAA is relatively common, actually. 60% of patients with dementia on autopsy studies have CAA pathology, and this is up to 80% in patients who have Alzheimer's disease. So there's clearly a related relationship between dementing processes, in particular, Alzheimer-type dementia and CAA. And so uh, understanding the underpinnings of CAA and, and the comorbidities that are related to CAA are, are very important. And specifically looking at seizures, there's, there's not a whole lot in the literature on this. And as you said, this is becoming more of a topic of interest, again, kind of feeding back into dementing processes and their association with seizures. But specifically related to CAA, there are likely two mechanisms associated with CAA that uh, lead to seizures, one of which is the accumulation of beta amyloid peptide, which in animal models has been shown to uh, lead to recurrent seizure activity uh, in Alzheimer type dementia. And then obviously with CAA, there's an increased risk of intracranial hemorrhage. Many of those cases have cortical involvement as well as cortically based inflammatory process 
known as CAA-related inflammation, which also would predispose to epilepsy as well as acute symptomatic seizure. So I think this topic probably needs to be better addressed given the importance that seizures may have in dementing conditions. Yeah, that sounds very reasonable. And you mentioned that the information right now is scarce. There is not that much of evidence, not that much of epidemiological data. Because there are some studies. What did they show and which gap did you close with your study? So I think the majority of the focus with CA has been in diagnosis, you know, diagnostic evaluations and the diagnostic criteria for CA, which is obviously very important. Now that we have that sort of settled, I think the focus is now more on comorbidities related to CAA and obviously looking at secondary intracranial hemorrhage is an important topic. But looking at seizures, there was a study that came out last year in epilepsy looking at a cohort of patients with seizures. And they found similar findings to us, though they looked at a smaller cohort and they were looking more at long-term epilepsy as opposed to acute symptomatic seizures. In our cohort, you know, we, we focus more both on the acute symptomatic seizures as well as the long-term risks of epilepsy. So this is something that is, again, as you said, is being talked about a little more, but there's very little looking at a heterogeneous cohort other than that study that I just mentioned. And there have been other studies looking at more homogeneous cohorts and smaller studies looking at patients specifically with intracranial hemorrhage or subarachnoid hemorrhage, both with and without amyloangiopathy. And there's clearly a link with seizures, but no one has looked at a heterogeneous population of patients with CAA to define within that cohort what are the risk factors for seizures. Another interesting topic, which we'll probably, I assume, touch on at some point, are amyloid spells or transient focal neurological episodes, which also, also are gaining more interest in research and have been studied for quite some time, though, are more looked at from the perspective of the vascular neurologist as opposed to the epileptologist. Um, more recently, there was a study back last year in JAMA Neurology that pointed out the importance of prognosis regarding amyloid spells and how they can be a precursor to intracranial hemorrhage and, and even more mortality. So understanding their underpinnings is quite important. And I think we'll touch upon our findings and how we, we are suspicious uh, based on what we found that this could that these spells could actually be more related to an epileptogenic potential as opposed to just a cortical sprain depression, as noted in previous studies, that would more likely be related to a migranous aura type phenomenon uh, that we are all aware of. And so, you know, again, I think from our perspective, looking at more from an epilepsy perspective is something that is, is more a more recent focus and I think is important. And I'm hoping that the more studies are going to be coming in the future related to that. Yeah, thank you so much for placing your study in the context of other research that is going on. And I think your study does add to the bulk of existing knowledge. Could you summarize for us the main findings? What did you find and what are the overall takeaway points from your study? So what we found was that in our cohort of 284 patients, all of whom were diagnosed with amyloangiopathy, either based predominantly on neuroimaging characteristics or with the addition of pathology in a few of the cases, that roughly 20% or 56 of the patients were diagnosed with epilepsy at some point during their, the course of their evaluation. And nearly one-third of those patients who had seizures actually presented with seizures as the index event that led to the diagnosis of amyloangiopathy. When we performed a univariate analysis looking at risk factors for seizures in this cohort, we found that low bar intracranial hemorrhage, cortical subarachnoid hemorrhage, superficial siderosis, and CAA with related inflammation all posed a higher risk of seizures. When we then performed the multivariate study, we found that superficial siderosis, low bar intracranial hemorrhage, and CAA with related inflammation remained significant. Further, we found that nearly a half of our patients who were clinically diagnosed with amyloid spells were diagnosed later with epilepsy based on both clinical and neurophysiological data. One other thing that's important to note was that the patients that did have seizures uh, did quite well clinically and were reasonably well controlled on either one or two anti-seizure medications with a very low incidence of drug resistance. 
Okay, thank you for the summary. Now let's dive deeper into this. So in your study, two independent risk factors for subsequent seizures were related to the release of blood products, either superficial hepatosis or intracerebral hemorrhage. Yet the microbleeds happened more frequently in a subgroup of individuals who did not have seizures. Why microbleeds do not appear pro-epileptogenic? Is there something to do with the location of the bleed and is ultimately cortical involvement in the bleeding? Is this the factor that it is determinantial? I think you're 100% correct and you've kind of hit it on the head there. And it's very interesting. And I think logically it makes a lot of sense. And again, let's just take this into perspective. We're looking at specifically patients with amyloangiopathy. We didn't compare them to patients without amyloangiopathy. So we want to keep that in mind. But when we look at the instance of microhemorrhages, these are the predominant neuroimaging features or finding that, that leads to the diagnosis of amyloangiopathy. And when we, when we look at neuroimaging criteria, 91% of our patients had microhemorrhages on imaging. So they're, they're often found in isolation, obviously, you know, without symptoms. So they're a common finding in amyloangiopathy. So we have to keep that in mind. And they're usually subcortical. And therefore, as, as I said, they're, you know, they're usually often subclinical. And therefore, the likelihood of them causing epilepsy is lower, given that they're not irritating the cortex. On the other hand, intracranial hemorrhage in CA is often large and often devastating and often seen concomitantly with superficial siderosis and cortical subarachnoid hemorrhage, which we also saw in our cohort. And so these findings or these uh, pathologies can lead to cortical irritation and subsequent seizures. Another pathology that I think we need to keep in mind related to these uh, patients is also the inflammatory process related to amyloid deposition in the cortex. So CA-related inflammation can actually also pose a higher risk of seizures. And so I think the involvement of the cortex, as you, as you laid out, is the important defining feature that differentiates patients who are, are at a higher risk of seizures as opposed to those who are not at a high risk of seizures in cases of amyloangiopathy. Mm -hmm. Thank you for elaborating on this. This makes lots of sense. Let's go further. A quarter of people in your cohort were diagnosed with amyloid cells, right? Transient focal neurological episodes. Half of them later on were diagnosed with seizures or epilepsy upon further evaluation. And it raises a couple of questions. First one would be, based on your research and your experience, other available evidence, how would you relate those amyloid cells and seizures? And second, how would you summarize the practical implications of this interlinking, if there is any? This is an extremely interesting and important question that you pose and something that, unfortunately, in a manuscript, we don't have enough space to get into details. And I think that needs further study. But regarding the findings that we made, as well as the data in the literature, as well as in my own experience clinically, I've always been somewhat concerned, disconcerted by the notion of spells. And, it's, and it seems like it's sort of this kind of hand-waving phenomenon where we kind of call them spells and leave it at that. And I know reviewing the cases that we had in our cohort, I found that to be the case as well with our with our clinicians. And I think that's something that we see a lot in, in practice. Uh, there, there have been studies, though, that have been trying to understand the underpinnings of spells. And particularly, you know, some have suggested that this is related to a cortical sprain depression phenomenon, as I mentioned before, likely, you know, similar to migranous auras. But I would argue against being definitive about that, given that a lot of the studies, as, as we point out in our, in our manuscript, uh, did not really uh, go deep into the possibility of these being seizures. When they studied spells, there were very few that had EEG study, very few that had uh, epilepsy evaluations that were mentioned. And our cohort was the same. There were about 35% of patients who had spells that never had any EEG study. 
So, you know, I think this is a little odd given that patients who present with spells without CA, we often uh, in the differential would consider seizures and would evaluate that as such. So I think that this is a problem with, with defining what spells are. And so regarding what we found, you know, I think when you look at previous studies, have, there have been suggestions that, that there's an anatomical correlation with spells. Uh, so for instance, there was a study that showed that on neuroimaging, when a patient presented with motor or sensory phenomena, you could actually look at the MRI and you could localize it to the contralateral hemisphere in the sensory motor region. So, so clearly there's a link there, right? And we know that spells have been related to superficial siderosis and subarachnoid hemorrhage in previous evaluations and analyses. Uh, and so, you know, as we point out in our study, obviously, superficial siderosis and cortical subarachnoid hemorrhage are also risk factors for seizures, not just spells, as pointed out in previous evaluations. So I think this is probably the pathophysiological link between spells and seizures. But again, we need further study to kind of better understand this because, you know, our assessment of patients with spells leaves a lot to be desired. That is very interesting. And I hope that further research can clarify what those spells are and how they relate to seizures. But I think that we are getting more and more information on that. And that's something that is important to keep in mind when you work up people with abiloid spells, just knowing what are they from the pathophysiological perspective and whether or not it implies any interventions, whether diagnostic or therapeutic afterwards. And I think when you discuss the practical implications of that, um, I think, you know, the implications, as I said, would be that when, when clinicians are encountering patients with amyloid spells, they should probably take a step back and analyze the case similarly to how they would with any patient presenting with a transient neurological event. And this would include evaluating for the possibility of seizures and even considering if the events are frequent maybe even trialing an anti-seizure medication in the appropriate setting would be something to think about. Thank you so much for giving this uh, perspective on the practical implications, because yeah. this is what everybody wonders about. Yeah. Those are epidemiological data, but what do we do with that and how do we frame it right. in our clinical practice? Let's talk about another practical point. For more than one-third of your cohort, the seizures were the housing sign, the first sign that led to the diagnosis of CAA. And do you think it has any anything to do with the approach to workup of individuals with late-onset epilepsy? If individuals present with late-onset seizures, would you consider working them up for CAA? Well, I think any patient who has late-onset epilepsy is likely going to undergo an MRI study. So I think you're probably going to get your answer with that. And my, my concern or my, my thoughts on the diagnosis of amyloidopathy as a cause of seizure is really not just with the being definitive about what the cause of the seizures were, but then being able to counsel the patient as well as being able to involve other specialists that are important in preventing secondary injury in patients with amyloidopathy, particularly related to secondary intracranial hemorrhage from the use of antithrombotics, which often is an issue with these patients given that there's comorbid vascular disease. So getting our stroke specialists or vascular specialists involved. And then obviously screening for cognitive impairment and the possibility of an underlying neurodegenerative process that's comorbid. And then again, making sure that we are getting our cognitive specialists involved if necessary to then rule out the possibility of comorbid uh, dementia. So I think really the diagnosis is important, obviously, in any case of seizures in uh, later uh, age uh, or elderly age. But I think in particular with amyloangiopathy, we just need to make sure that we know that this is a, a distinct possibility as a cause 
and then being able to relay that and communicate that clearly to everyone involved. Fantastic. There is another practical point that I would like to raise. In your study, there was no increased mortality in the seizure cohort. The seizures were not treatment resistant, so most of them were reasonably controlled and or on one or two anti-seizure medications, as you mentioned. Yet you do report status epilepticus in five individuals out of 56. That's roughly 9% of your cohort. How does this rate relate to other causes of late onset epilepsy and how would you wrap uh, this together and present it to your patients when discussing their prognosis? So I think relating to the incidence of status epilepticus, when you look at other studies specifically looking at or analyzing the, the pathologies that we looked at, particularly with intracranial hemorrhage or subarachnoid hemorrhage in the acute setting, the numbers can be as high as 8% uh, regarding those presenting with those clinical histories and then subsequently being diagnosed with status epilepticus. Uh, so if you take that into account, our numbers are relatively on par looking at the whole cohort being roughly 2% having status epilepticus. Again, we have a very heterogeneous population. So we have patients with intracranial hemorrhage, patients that had ischemic stroke, both acute and chronic. We have patients that just had microhemorrhages. We have patients that had CA-related inflammation. So there was a study, again, as I mentioned earlier, last year in epilepsy, looking at CAA and seizures. They had similar findings, including the low rate of status epilepticus, as well as the low incidence of drug resistance. I think kind of going back to your point about prognosis, regarding these patients with seizures who we end up diagnosing and, and decide on starting into seizure medication, when I would counsel a patient, I would tell them that the good news is that most patients with amyloangiopathy and seizures are responsive to one or two medications and often are seizure-free, which is not something that we can say for most patients with epilepsy. And probably if you look at the data, obviously numbers are around a third of patients that we know of don't respond to anti-seizure medications and require evaluation for possible surgery, given that they are drug-resistant. Looking at our cohort, obviously, the number is much lower. So I think that's probably, from that perspective, that's a good good sign. And so that we can tell our patients that's reassuring. The one thing I would, I would bring up would be, and often, and patients may not ask this question, but something that would maybe be in the back of their mind as to, you know, you've given the diagnosis of seizures and you've given the diagnosis of amyloangiopathy, and they're going to see that that's related to Alzheimer's disease. So what does that mean for the patient? Do they have Alzheimer's disease? And are these seizures going to affect their cognitive function. And I think we still need to sort that out. So our study was retrospective and we had a follow-up period with a meeting of about 35 months. So I think we'd have to be very, we'd have to temper our, our counseling regarding that and tell the patient that, you know, we still need to sort that out with further study in the future. But overall, I would have a pretty hopeful outlook regarding their seizures. That is very reassuring. And although longer follow-up studies is needed to highlight or to clarify that linked to Alzheimer's disease, at least the seizures appear to be well-controlled. With that, which questions are still unaddressed in the field of CAA and seizures and epilepsy? And do you have any plans on investigating this area further? So I have two big burning questions, which we kind of touched on. One of which would be the association between seizures and long-term neuropsychological functioning in these patients. This needs prospective evaluation and a longer-term follow-up to better understand how seizures are affecting patients with amyloangiopathy and whether or not it can have an impact on their outcome and prognosis from a uh, cognitive perspective. And I think the second question relates to amyloid spells and really what, what's the under, underpinning of them. And I think this needs to be, at the very least, addressed in a more rigorous retrospective study, including a cohort of a similar size to ours. And I think, you know, to better analyze the implication of spells and their possible link to seizures, this needs to be done. 
and really with a longer term follow up to, to better delineate the incidents associated with seizures uh, and spells. I think the risks of misdiagnosing spells as TIA or other causes can have grave consequences. And as I mentioned in the prior study in JAMA Neurology last year, there's a significant association between spells and the risk of intracranial hemorrhage and mortality. So this, the diagnosis of spells and the management of spells is something that we need to better understand with, with further study. And this is a topic that I actually plan on looking at in the future. That is fantastic, Dr. Freund. I am very much looking forward to talking to you a couple of months or probably years later about this and what you have found. And thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. We greatly appreciate your insight. Yeah, and we are looking forward to discussing more results from you in the future. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun and I look forward to uh, hearing this on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Sharp Waves. Our content is meant for informational purposes only and not as medical or clinical advice. The International League Against Epilepsy is the world's preeminent association of health professionals and scientists working toward a world where no person's life is limited by epilepsy. Find more Sharp Waves episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at ilae.org.